0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillam, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Gladys Mitchell Wathauer, who is the author of the book *The Politics of Survival: Black Women's Social Welfare Beneficiaries in Brazil and the United States*, published by Columbia University Press. And the book is in the series, Black Lives in the Diaspora, Past, Present, and Future. Dr. Mitchell-Wathauer, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so happy to
2: be here, Dr. Galen.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I'm really excited to talk about your book, The Politics of Survival. Um, So you are the author of The Politics of Blackness, Racial Identity, and Political Behavior in Contemporary Brazil, And in that book, um, you're also a political scientist. And so you examine um, aspects of Black voting behavior, political attitudes, and support for Black candidates. Um, But in this book, The Politics of Survival, you focus on Black women welfare beneficiaries. So can you tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book?
2: Yes. Um, So as you mentioned, a lot of my work has been really on Afro-Brazilian political behavior in general. Um, but I was really interested, um, I would say due to some circumstances and experiences of looking at uh, Afro-Brazilian and African-American women's social welfare beneficiaries. So the the thing that I, I think about the most in terms of um, Brazil is the 2014 elections. And I kept seeing these memes pop up on social media about um, Bolsa Familia. But basically, I saw the welfare queen stereotype in Brazil. And this is just, it's not that it it never existed. It's just it was the first time that I saw it um, so prominently on social media. And of course, being, you know, a Black American, I was familiar with it. And so when I saw these memes, you know, stereotyping um, Black women as lazy as people um, who just want to have a lot of children to receive the benefits, I thought, well, this is really interesting. Um, and then at the at the time, I lived in Milwaukee, and I also have a daughter, um, and so I was often stereotyped in Milwaukee as as being someone who didn't have a lot of education, um, and also as receiving. Um, federal aid or, you know, aid in terms of, um, some type of social welfare. Um, and, and that experience isn't unique, right. In terms of black women being stereotyped, it doesn't matter that I, you know, that I don't receive the aid or that I never receive the aid, but that is how other people stereotype me. And then at the same time, you know, going back and forth to Brazil, uh, I had similar experiences, not as being stereotyped as receiving social welfare, but as being, you know, being seen as a thief or, you know, people assuming that um, I didn't have money and things like this. So that kind of led me these experiences, plus what I was seeing um, in these elections as being drawn to this population, um, and just really wanting to know more about their experiences. I would say the other thing, too, is the political science literature um, was also a, a bit disturbing to me. So people were also talking about Bosa Familia beneficiaries, and there were you know, uh, a group of political scientists saying, oh, well, they only vote for these candidates um, because these, you know, politicians or candidates support Bolsa Familia. Um, And in addition, they would say this is a form of clientelism. Clientelism is usually, you know, in the form of like receiving certain services or maybe a politician might fix up a neighborhood and then, you know, expect votes, but they were talking about this program in this way. And then you have other political scientists that were saying, no, it's, it's not a form of clientelism. And their research showed that. So both of those things kind of seeing what was going on in social media, what was going on in the academy. And again, um, many of those who were making the claim that it was a form of clientelism, they weren't actually talking to the beneficiaries which I found really strange, um, and then having these embodied experiences um, really led me to this project.
1: Great, thank you for that. Um, that's really interesting that that you talked about the this division in the literature that you saw and I you know I really appreciate how you framed it that way because as you know as academics we then intervene in the literature and we make our arguments Um, and so from talking to the uh, women the social welfare beneficiaries um, you write in the book that you argue quote that Afro-descendant women in anti-Black countries resist systems of domination, such as racism, colorism, sexism, and classism through survival strategies that sustain their families, unquote. And so that was, you know, a quote from you. And so one of the ways that I interpreted this argument was that Black women simply, you know, surviving in a system built to exclude them is a political act or an act of resistance. And so I wondered if you could talk about then the argument that you are making in the book and how you came to it.
2: Yes. So, um, again, I was really interested in studying Black women. And uh, so, of course, that led me, you know, to um, considering Black feminism and also intersectional approaches. And oftentimes, when I go back to Patricia Hill Collins's work, um, I would go back to this notion of the politics of survival. So that was really the first time that... um, that I started, or not the first time, but it it was really her work that influenced me to think about this question of um, simply surviving as a form of resistance. And again, it goes back to really the situation that a lot of um, poor and low wealth black women um, live, right? So there are all of these stereotypes. Then when you actually look at people's lives, you really can't, and and this was very clear to me, (laughs) living in Milwaukee. The simple act of living really was a form of resistance. Um, and then, of course, you know, like I said, going back and forth to Brazil. Um, and so when I did the interviews and I have questions about perceptions of discrimination, of course, I also have you know questions about voting and, and things like that. But the questions about perceptions of discrimination also allowed me not only to, 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 to see and understand how women t- talk about what they perceive in terms of, you know, uh, gender discrimination, class discrimination, or skin color discrimination, but also um, they would also talk about uh, kind of how they reacted to it, right? And so when women would talk about how they reacted to it, that is what really made me clearly see how, and these could be very small things, right? It could be in a grocery store and uh, someone pulls out their card, right? Their SNAP card, um, on which, you know, some people refer to as uh, food stamps. Um, and they could pull out their card. Someone may make a remark, um, someone in line, and then they would say something back to them. You know, basically, like they have the right. Or sometimes people would um, assume they were using the card for certain items, and they're like, "No, I'm using my my regular cash for this." Or maybe they were disrespected by a cashier. There was a case where a woman uh, was disrespected, and then she talked to the manager, right? Um, so there were other examples where women actually responded to that. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't just like, oh, I noticed this happened to me, but it was actually a response. Um, so that is a, um, those are forms of resistance to those intersectional discriminations, but also, um, you know, as you, you mentioned earlier, Oftentimes, women the the aid that they get, the benefits they get, they're not a they're not enough, <laughs> right? So you know, and you think about Brazil, um, if someone is getting you know about twenty U.S. per month. Um, that's that's not a lot of, it's not a lot of money. Even in Brazil, it's not a lot of money if you have a family. Um, and so they have all of these other things that they do. It could be, um, doing hair, painting nails, um, in the U S, uh, uh, people, I remember some women talked about, oh, well, um, I will go to the grocery store for a family member and then they will pay me for it. Or they you know, um, someone, I think um, it was in Chicago said that she would sell her um, kids like their old clothes. So people get very creative um, to supplement those benefits. And for me, all of these efforts that they um, were making was really so that their families could survive. Right. And so, um, that, for me, really showed me that um, that survival is, is, it really is an act of resistance. And, and women would say it like, OK, well, I'm not just going to give up, you know. So um, it's, it was really in contrast to all the stereotypes about people just kind of, you know, not doing anything. And, and some of these women work. <laughs> so some, they already work. Um, some, they are disabled or they have children who are disabled. Um, so it, so it's very difficult to work. But even in those circumstances, they were trying to figure out, you know, other things that they could do basically um, to survive.
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned um, Patricia Hill Collins and turning to black feminism Uh, to understand this concept that you, you know, that you talk about in the book, The Politics of Survival. And I also wanted to ask you more about this Black feminist perspective, um, because it seemed like you were also talking about how many of the studies of welfare recipients take a very general perspective regarding poverty, and they don't really talk about race. Um, But you consistently as you said, draw from black feminist scholarships and advance a black feminist interpretation. And so I wondered, um, what does this black feminist perspective bring uh, to the study of poverty and welfare recipients?
2: Yes, excellent question. I think it's really important to have um, a black feminist perspective, right? One in which considers the intersection of race, class, gender, color, and, I, in, you know, skin color, because all of these things interact to shape experiences. Um, so I really appreciate your questions, because oftentimes when I, OK, I won't say oftentimes, but sometimes <laughs> when I present this work, people will say, oh, well, why didn't you study white women? Well, I didn't study white women because a project is <laughs> about black women. <laughs> um, and so in black women what Black feminism forces us to do is to center Black women. So oftentimes when people talk about poverty, they don't necessarily um, talk about it um, in terms of, or in an intersectional way, right? Um, so you there may be studies where they talk about um, women in general, right? If we're thinking about Bosa Familia, but not necessarily um, Afro-Brazilian women are not necessarily centering them. There are a few, and I have those. I um, I do talk about those in the book. Um, and then for the United States case, really poor people have dropped out of the conversation. I mean, there have been leaders, and there are leaders such as um, Dr. William Barber, who, fortunately, with his Poor People's um, Campaign, is really bringing this you know to the forefront. But in the literature, there's just, there's less work. And even in politics, people talk about the working class. Um, they often talk about the middle class, but they do not talk about poor people. Um, and then when they do, it isn't always in a, you know, in a productive way, right? So outside of people stereotyping, um, so, you know, people having serious conversations, they often don't. Um, do it uh, with a Black feminist lens that will consider the, the ways in which all of those intersections, um, those intersectional identities, as well as intersectional discriminations, interact to produce certain experiences. And that's really what I wanted to do with my book, was to look at how across two different places, how these um, identities and discriminations intersect to lead to a certain set of experiences, and then how women respond to those experiences. Um, And and also how uh, these programs can either, you know, um, for the most part, they empower women the, I mean, the disempowerment would come from, you know, people stereotyping them. But again, they re, um, not everyone, of course, but some women um, respond to that and resist those stereotypes.
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned that was really important, I thought, when you talked about how poverty is fallen out of the discourse in the United States because I always, as you know, I also do research in Brazil. And so I was always struck by how people in Brazil will sometimes identify as poor. They'll say like, I'm I'm poor, you know, whereas in the United States, you rarely hear someone explicitly say like, I'm poor. It's usually... Other people who have to put that label or, as you said, like use another term like the working class or something to soften the term. Um, And so I wondered if you could uh, talk about that, those differences between the United States and Brazil, because, um, as you said, you compare black women, social welfare recipients in the United States and Brazil, and you draw from three different cities in each country and you do 240 in-depth interviews. Um, and I'm gonna ask about your research methods a bit later, so we will get to that. But I wondered um, why you chose these two countries, um, why do Brazil and, and the United States provide this the right context for your study? And if you could talk about the differences and similarities in these welfare programs in the two countries.
2: Yes. Um, so just to add a little bit to um, what we were talking about um, in terms of uh, the discourse of poverty in the U.S., there was a great quote that I have in the book where Cory Bush is talking about when um, basically when she was homeless and living in her car with her kids. And so she, um, you know, had to use um, a social welfare program. And the thing she said that she felt really bad about was how, people, was how people made her feel bad in the U.S. for being poor, right? And I think, um, I think that also, because of the discourse in this country of, um, and this is going to lead into the, the kind of the differences between the two countries, in the U.S., poor people are made to feel bad and they're made to feel like it's their fault, right? So, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's like even for the people who, who may suffer from class discrimination, um, well, of course, all of these intersect, um, they may not perceive it that way, Um, because they're made to feel bad about it, right? Like it's their fault. Um, So I do have a chapter where I look at um, skin color discrimination, and then I also look at um, class discrimination. And I look at uh, class discrimination in two ways. So in one chapter, I look at discrimination um, or perceptions of uh, discrimination against social welfare beneficiaries. So that's one way of looking at class. But then I also look at class discrimination in terms of um, a question. This uh, I'm paraphrasing, but the question is: um, Do you think people um, discriminate against people from your neighborhood? Something like that, or do they perceive your neighborhood in a you know in a certain way in a in a negative way? And what I find is, for the most part, um, the women in Brazil are more well, except for São Paulo. <laughs> São Paulo is different. They often mirror the like the patterns of the U.S. But for the most part, the women in Brazil, um, the beneficiaries in Brazil, were more likely to perceive neighborhood or class discrimination than skin color discrimination. And then for the United States, they were more likely to perceive skin color discrimination um, than neighborhood discrimination. Now, again, you know, I could go through the book and, and, and talk about um, each city and, and those differences, but I think the, the general uh, finding was that these kind of mapped onto myths of both nations. Right, so in Brazil, um, there's the the myth of racial democracy. Right, that when there is discrimination, right, um, and of course, we both know <laughs> through our work and experiences, there are plenty of Afro-Brazilians that know there is skin color discrimination. So I'm not saying that. Um, I'm just saying that in my work, especially especially in Salvador, Salvador had the lowest number of people perceiving di- skin color discrimination, like less than 30%. And that's a constant trend in the work I've been doing in Salvador since like 2004. Um, but again, it maps on well to this idea that, oh, you know, when there's discrimination um, in Brazil, it's due to, class, right? Or perceived class. So um, this is less of the case now, but I do remember when I first started traveling to Brazil um, and it can still happen now, but it's just less often. Like if I would experience discrimination for me, skin color discrimination, my Brazilian friends would ask, "Oh, well, what were you wearing? You know, because for them, it was, oh, well, you know, it must be, you know, they perceive you in, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z way. Um, Whereas in the U.S., the women, um, even though, you know, sometimes, um, and there are people who perceive, you know, that there's discrimination, um, and they'll talk about it, like, You know, that people will think, for example, in Milwaukee, the north side is, gosh, uh, over 90 percent black, for example. Um, And so there are certain stereotypes about the north side and women are aware of that. So that's an example of, you know, people may maybe they would say, oh, yeah, there there is class discrimination or not class, but, you know, neighborhood discrimination. But in general, so in general, though, women were less likely to perceive um, neighborhood discrimination compared to skin color discrimination. So um, so that was one of the findings um, for those two countries. And then do you want me to talk a little bit about why I chose the two countries? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah so... A lot of my work, well, before this book, really, (laughs) most of my work was only on Brazil. Um, But again, and so to to any of the listeners, I just have to mention that I lived in Milwaukee for eight years, eight long years. (laughs) But the thing that was so unique about Milwaukee, um, for me, is that it felt so Brazilian, It was the first U.S. city that felt so Brazilian to me. And I will explain what I mean by that, because I know I'm talking about places that are very different. Milwaukee has lots of snow, right? People will say it's nothing like Brazil. But in terms of this, like the stereotypes, people would just automatically make about me, that just felt very Brazilian to me. Um, And I've lived in different places in the U.S. Like right now, I live in North Carolina. I'm, you know, from North Carolina. I've lived in Indiana. I've lived in Chicago. I've lived in Baltimore. But it was in Milwaukee where... um, I have a, I kind of open up the book and I talk about these different experiences, um, such as, you know, we would take my daughter to this, um, like a Chinese immersion school on Sundays. And there was a white woman who I, so when I was there and my daughter had her two hour class, for me, that was two hours that I could do work. And so I was just on my laptop, always doing work. And, um, but one time my husband brought uh, my daughter um, to her class and there was a white woman who was asking him about me and and she thought I was working on my undergraduate degree. <laughs> so here I am with a PhD and I'm a professor, but in her head, like that is the only thing she could imagine was that I had, you know, um, who knows, maybe a, a a GED, or who knows what the stereotype was, and that I was, you know, working on um, an undergraduate degree. Um, but that wasn't like, the only time something like that happened, it happened so many times, where it was naturalized. And I think that's really what made it feel so Brazilian to me. And I'm not saying there aren't other places in the U.S. where you can have that experience. Um, But in Milwaukee, it was, blackness was always naturalized in a particular way. Um, And I I, I don't want to (laughs) go off topic here, but Milwaukee is known as the worst place for black people. And I felt it. Um, And I'm not saying that Brazil is the worst place (laughs) for Black people, but Milwaukee definitely, like, I could feel it. Um, And for me, I thought, this is so interesting. Um, And so it led me, along with all the other reasons that I mentioned, to actually think about a comparative project, right? Because before, I just did work on Brazil. But after having this kind of Brazil experience in the U.S., um, that also kind of sparked this interest in a comparative project. Um, so that was why I decided to do the comparative project. And then just in terms of the cities I chose, so I was located in Milwaukee. Um, so that's why I chose Milwaukee. Um, I used to live in Chicago, uh, which is hour and a half to two hours from Milwaukee. So it was more of a, you know, convenient place, but also just given the the history Um, of, you know, Black resistance um, in Chicago, um, I thought it would be a great place. And then the third city I chose was Charlotte. Um, And again, uh, I grew up north of Charlotte. And so again, it was more of a place where I knew I could just kind of jump in um, and do work. And then for the Brazilian cities, Salvador, São Paulo and San Luis; those were also cities um, that I uh, that I was very familiar with.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That is fascinating. the The, the similarities that you felt between Brazil and and Milwaukee, um, I would have never I would have never thought that you would feel those similarities in in those cities, like in Milwaukee, because um, when it, sometimes there are other cities in, in the United States that I go to that feel. Brazilian or Caribbean, like Miami or New Orleans. Um, and so, you know, but that's just the feel of the city. It's not necessarily my experience and how I'm treated in the city. So I think that's, that's really just interesting how, um, you know, you, you kind of, and, and what you're kind of pointing to is how, you know, travel opens our eyes and it makes us like see things differently and you can like pick up on these like sensations. Um, I think that's fascinating. And then I wondered if you could also talk about the differences between, um, Bolsa Família in Brazil and welfare in the United States, because I think Bolsa Família is relatively recent in Brazil, and previous to that, I don't think they had much social welfare. Um, whereas in the United States, we have probably a more longstanding um, kind a of form of social welfare. And I, I guess there are like different different kinds of things that people can access for like either food or you know, rent subsidies. Um, and so I wondered if you could just give listeners like a sense of just what what are the different kinds of resources that people can access.
2: Yes. Um, and so before Bosa Familia, they did have another program, but um, Bosa Familia was, you know, more expansive, right? And then also, so a huge difference is that it's, or at least in the past. Um, It was a conditional cash transfer program, right? So this meant that um, mothers had to regularly send their um, children to school, also that they had to have, um, you know, regular doctor's visits, um, and they would get a card, kind of like a, you know, it looks like a debit card. Um, And you don't only have to use it for food. So most women, in fact... You know, like in my work, most use it for food, Um, but you can also use it. So some people would use it for like, like if their kids needed uh, different things for school. So, you know, they may use it for paper, pencil, you know, that kind of stuff or um, small items. So technically you can uh, you can use the card beyond, you know, just food. So that's a difference, whereas um, SNAP, and I, I should mention, I, I included, uh, for the U.S. sample, I included women who receive WIC, um, which is, you know, women, infants, um, and children. So that is, um, that program, I believe, stops at age Five, um, and that's like you know, women can get formula, fruit, those type of things. So that one is um, also just more focus on food and and, and nutrition. Um, but also, but also, SNAP is uh, pretty much strictly food, which is different. Um, and also, SNAP is different in this sense that. You know, there is no requirement of, oh, yeah, make sure you, you know, send your kid to school, you know. So um, so that part is different. Now, there was and I I talked about this whole controversy um, in the book in terms of in the 90s when people were talking about work requirements. And of course, now in the news, um, the, um, you know, Congress is um, has passed or not passed, but this is part of, you know, the negotiations for the, um, the debt ceiling that, um, that single people receiving SNAP, they now have work requirements up until I think the age of 54. It used to be 50, but now it's, um, up to 54. Um, so that's so. Those are kind of the differences, just in terms of one is a you know conditional cash transfer, or used to be. You know, it it changed the 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 program changed after Bolsonaro, and then Lula has changed it a little bit more in terms of um, increasing the ages of children. Um, for the, you know, for the uh, women who um, receive it. So there, there have been some changes since I did my research in 2018. But in general, those are kind of the differences in the, in the two programs.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And so I wanted to turn to some of your findings, um, from your surveys and interviews with the women. Um, and so some of the stereotypes of welfare recipients or are that they don't work and that they live like comfortably off the money from the state. Um, and I think this was kind of some, some things that you've alluded to in some of your past answers. And so I wondered, um, so was the money that the women received enough to cover all their needs and, you know, did they, did they have to work? And I asked this because in the book, you know, you, you spend a considerable amount of time discussing how women, you know, use the money from your interview, uh, data?
2: Yes, that is, um, a really, really important question. So unfortunately, um, pretty much all of the women appreciate these benefits, right? So no one's, you know, complaining, um, that they receive benefits, but, um, it's they're, they're not enough, right? And so I do have a question where I ask Has it ever been difficult to make ends meet, even receiving, you know, Bolsa Familia or SNAP um, and WIC? And so, for example, in Salvador, 93% of the women said, Yes, it has still been difficult in Sa- in Sao Paulo 100% of women said yes and in San Luis 92%. Um, now in the United States is very similar, right? So in the US 90% of beneficiaries in Chicago said it was still difficult, 100% in Milwaukee said it was still difficult and 88% um, in Charlotte said that it was still very difficult to make ends meet, right? So this is why it's important, right, to, to look at these programs, because I think outsiders, um, you know, they just assume, oh, yeah, they're getting money for food, they're fine. However, like I said, again, when, when you think about the amount of money that people get, it's actually not a lot. Um, and so the reason that I was interested in this question was the follow-up question, which was, well, well then what do you do? And, um, so in Brazil, 51% said that they will, um, Find a job or work an odd job. So that's what I was talking about earlier. In terms of women, they would talk about, um, you know, painting nails or doing hair. Um, 31% said that they borrow money from family or friends. What was interesting about that is that they often turn to other women. So it's not that they're not turning um, to men and their family, um, but they were more likely to turn to other women. Um, and this, there was a uh, similar trend in the, in the U.S. that, um, that people uh, would either turn to a mother-in-law, their mother, um, but um, basically another, another woman, which again shows, um, I don't know if I want to call it a burden, but an obligation. Right. And so this is also something. um, This is why, again, black feminism or using black feminism in studies, why it's so important. And Claudia Cardozo, she talks about this, how she talks about um, what she calls um, an African cosmovision where black women are really those, and and she's talking about Brazil, but black women are those who are really kind of responsible for the community, but also that they work collectively. So people aren't always thinking about like individual needs, but they're thinking about the needs of the community and collective needs. And I see it through like in some of these findings, Right, so the fact that the women know that they can rely on other women is because the other women also know that uh, this is a collective right effort. It's not. It's not just an individual survival, um, but it's really a survival of you know families and communities. Um, so again, in terms of just the the findings in the United States. Um, their women were, women also had a, you know, a different kind of strategies for how they were, would survive when they need assistance, when, you know, the um, social welfare benefits weren't enough. So in the US, 26% of women said that they borrow, you know, money from family or friends. Um, what was different about the U.S. was that 24 percent sought assistance from a nonprofit organization. But this is also due to how I was you know, able to get access to women. So um, in all three cities, well, uh, Charlotte, Charlotte, we tried to. Um, to go beyond just working with a nonprofit. But most of the interviews came from a nonprofit um, in the U.S. Um, In Salvador, they also came from a nonprofit. But um, so such as the YWCA, there's a place in Charlotte where they will. And it's really like an emergency type place. So someone may say, um, I need help paying my electric bill. They can get help there. I need help paying my cell phone. I need food. Like, like now I need food. Um, and so there's a higher percentage of women who were able to, you know, get that kind of assistance, um, in the United States, um, Also in the U.S., 18% said that they will find work or, again, work these kind of odd jobs really to to supplement the benefits. And then women also talked about in both countries, they talked about partial payments. So, like, pay a certain amount on one bill and then pay a certain amount on another bill um, if they weren't able to pay fully on, on all of the bills. So those were just some of the, the findings.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com/system
1: Yeah, and those findings are so important to document what people actually, as you said, do with the money and that it's not enough because there are all of these myths and stories that go on about you know, people who receive these benefits. And so if you actually talk to them, they'll tell you, you know, it, it's actually not you know what people perceive it to be. Um, and so other findings is uh, you examine whether your research participants noticed the stigma against them and how they responded to it. And I was inspired by this one woman, for example, it's on page 112, um, who thought that everyone should have welfare. And so in, in, when, when, you, when you were asking about, I guess, stigma, she said, I feel like everyone should be able to get food stamps or Medicaid. I feel like people that's working should be able to get it too, because we all fall short. And she, so she was really just, you know, referring to this, to the stigma to kind of well, say, well, well, everybody falls short, like everybody should have some kind of, you know, help and support. And that's also kind of a testament to the book and how you include in the book, the, the voices of the women who you, you know, interview as well, which I know people will, will like when they read it. And so I wondered um, for you, um, how did your research participants, um, what were the other ways you found that people responded to the stigma and expressed a kind of empowerment?
2: Yes. Um, So the one thing, just as you were um, talking, it reminded me of a quote I have in here by President Lula. And he was interviewed on this podcast and the interviewer said something like, oh, well, should, you know, poor people be able to eat shrimp? First of all, I don't know why shrimp is the thing that... That people talk about in the US and Brazil. It's just weird to me. But um, Lula said, yes, they should be able to. They're the ones catching the shrimp. And then he was like, and they should be able to um buy cars. They're the ones making the cars, right? So I really like this idea that um that 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 poor people or low wealth people they shouldn't be excluded from um, what some people call luxury items. And for whatever reason, people think that shrimp is a a luxury. Um, And so I think that's also something important to remember. And it's also just a good, for me, it's a good reminder, right? Because oftentimes, and I hear this from everyone, including Black people, right? They will critique... Low-income people. Well, why is it that she's always spending her money getting her hair done, or blah blah blah? Why not? Why why can't um, low-income black women feel good about themselves and get their hair done? She's always spending her money on nails. Okay, why not? What's, I don't what's the problem? <laughs> and if you actually talk to some, there's there's okay. I won't get off on a tangent, but there's you know some people are really struggling. There are some women um, who are taking care of um, children with uh, debilitating conditions, and they're taking care of them full time. Some are taking care of adult children. There was one I remember we did an interview in Charlotte, and I thought, well, this is strange, because when we um, pulled up, my uh, research assistant and I, I saw a bunch of police cars. I thought, well, this is weird. And then um, once we, you know, got into her place, she was telling us that there um, had been um, some type of shootout. And so her son couldn't go out to ride his bicycle. And she felt bad about that because she's his caretaker. Um, And so and, and this lady actually had a college degree from like University of South Carolina, but she also had a disability. So it was very difficult for her to even stand um, but so the, the reason I'm going off <laughs> right on this tangent is that I think if people were to actually, you know, talk with people, learn more about their experiences, you, maybe you would understand why someone wants to get their nails done or why someone doesn't, you know, um, want to feel bad about themselves and they want to get their hair done sometimes. Maybe, you know, people would be a little more empathetic. Um, okay. So now let me get back. <laughs> To um, yeah, so how women responded to basically stereotypes of of social welfare beneficiaries. So there was this one interview. I'm trying to find it, but basically, um, one of the participants in Brazil someone made uh, a comment on, like, Facebook about Bosa Familia beneficiaries, um, you know, basically saying they don't want to work and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, she responded to that person. Um, So that's, you know, that's a a very simple uh, example. But there are others, like I said, when people are actually out in public and strangers will critique them. Well, why are you purchasing that? Like total strangers critiquing them. Um, and then they, you know, they respond to it. And um, I, I also really love the quote that you mentioned. Um, because for that respondent and actually some of the other ones, and I talk about this, for some of the women, they didn't feel the stigma because they lived in communities where other people received benefits. So they would say, we all receive benefits. Like, what are you talking about? What's stigma? Um, and so, you know, you do, you have somewhere depending on where they live, they, uh, they may not, you know, perceive or feel that stigma, but a number of women also talked about it um, as a right. So they like, they, right, individually as a person, as a person, they know their situation and they know that they have the right to food, right? So for them, um, it wasn't anything that they felt bad about um, because they knew it was a right, like they have the right to eat. Um, and then for some, some would, uh, it, it was interesting kind of the cognitive dissonance of some of the respondents when they would start, critiquing beneficiaries, um, even though they received the benefits, you know, they, they would say, Oh, well, this person is lazy, or I know someone who, you know, gets it, but you know, they shouldn't or something like that. Um, but for many um, it was, it it really did allow them to be empowered as they were able to feed their children Right. Because at the end of the day, for most women, that's, you know, that's what they use it for. I, I actually don't have any examples of people saying that they were able to, you know, use it, uh, you know, in, I don't know, just in wasteful ways, because they like they know how much money they get and they know exactly how they use it. So, um you know, I have to say it was also an, an, uh, an eye-opener for me and also a really humbling um, experience. One, just, you know, as a person, but also um, the other thing I, I didn't mention is when we were doing these interviews, my daughter was with me. <laughs> so when I drove, I think I, I can't remember if I drove. I think I did drive from Milwaukee to Charlotte to do some of these interviews My daughter was there in the car. She was there when I was doing the interview. She was there in Brazil, you know, so if there were other kids, she was out there playing with them. Um, but it, so it allowed for me to get to see how other mothers, black mothers, regardless of class, how other black mothers just do things that mothers do, right? Not all, but many mothers, um, they really just want to provide for their children in the best way possible. So, um, being able to feed them is one way, um, and and that is a way um, that they can that they are empowered. Not just you know can feel empowered, but they are because they're able to you know provide for their children. So that was a long answer, but um, but that's yeah that's that's how I would answer that question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that uh, the beginning when you were talking about the access to certain goods, I think that's that's really critical because I remember I was teaching a class and it was a class on food and culture. And one of the articles was about welfare beneficiaries and their ability to access um, certain goods. And some the, the article was about like their ability to access like quote unquote junk food, like chips and things like that. And I remember teaching the class and the students were like, well, of course they shouldn't be able to get you know, chips, they're, they're on welfare. They should have to get another kind of food. And, that, but the purpose of the article was to talk about well, why do we have to control, the, or the idea that we have to control their food acquisition, but not other people's food acquisition. And it was really hard to kind of to communicate that idea. And so I think that, again, like what you were talking about is very prevalent. And I loved Lula's response, which is like, they're the ones making the, the they're the ones catching the straw. I mean, that is that is brilliant because that's so that's so true. They're, they're the ones doing the work and making making these things. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, that's that's really important. Um, and so one of the other questions about the findings that I had for you was that you know, again, one of your main points of the book is that Black women welfare recipients are political subjects. And I think we also don't think about them in that way either. And um, and so you survey and interview women on their political knowledge and participation. And so could you, first, can you talk about the difference in mandatory voting in Brazil versus voluntary voting in the United States? Um, and then how did your research participants express their political views?
2: Yes, I um... So, yes, definitely political subjects. Um, and again, but, you know, just people we, we don't talk about, unfortunately. Um, now, in Brazil, as you mentioned, voting is mandatory. So up until a certain age, I want to say 65, um, people have to vote. And if not, you get charged um, a certain fine. It's a small fine, but still. Um, whereas in the U.S., right? It's not mandatory, so, you know, (laughs) people don't always vote. However, in the United States, Black women generally have high levels of voter turnout, so, you know, over 60%. Um, And then um, the other thing I think that is important to mention about Brazil is even though they have mandatory voting, people do have ways to kind of, uh, show resistance, right? So you could, uh, you could, you know, go to the the voting booth and technically vote, but you actually, you know, don't vote. <clears throat> so, you know, vote in white. Or let's say there are, um, you're only supposed to vote for one candidate, but you vote for two, right? So then your vote is a alt right? So there are these different ways that people can, you know, like, vote without voting, um, and so I think that's uh, that's important also to mention because sometimes or there are some scholars who kind of look at those different methods as either like a protest vote or um, just different ways of expressing uh, dissatisfaction, right, in a place where voting is mandatory. Now, in terms of, I think, some of the uh, what I was really interested in, I will say, is this notion that, um, again, responding to the literature, and oftentimes the literature would say, oh, well, you know, both of beneficiaries vote in this way, or, right, with the uh, election of Bolsonaro. 2018 to 2022, right? The whole discourse was, um, oh, well, the, the reason that he won is, is due to, well, several reasons, right? But one of the reasons is that people would say um, it was the evangelical vote. Evangelicals came out and they voted for him. Um, so in my uh, questionnaire, I have a question about religion, and so I just had the question there because I thought it was interesting. But what I started to notice when I was kind of going through my findings is that in both samples, more than the majority of the women um, practice a religion. And in Brazil, the most popular religion uh, were those practicing or um uh, for the participants, uh, most of them were evangelicals, and I thought, well, that's that's interesting because most of them said that they voted for Gilma, you know, in the the past uh, election. At the time, it was 2018, so Gilma was the the one who you know won, but then Tamir was in um, in office, and then of course, in the U.S., um, most women. Um, voted for the the Democratic candidate. And the the U.S. sample was to be expected, right? Because most Black Americans are Democrat. Um, But also most of the women um, in the U.S. were Christian. And I think the most popular denomination was Baptist. But the Brazil finding was super interesting to me Um, Because I was like, well, this doesn't go with the literature. If if most of the (laughs) if Bolsonaro got the support um, due to evangelicals or, you know, if if evangelicals are conservative, then why would they have voted for someone from the Workers Party like that just didn't? Um, go together. And so, but again, um, I think the reason that I find these differences, and I went back in 2022 and interviewed more women, so of course that's not in the book, Um, but I found a similar trend. No one said they were voting for Bolsonaro. Zero, zero, zero. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it uh, included women who practiced condomble, included women who were evangelical. Um, but the, the point is, is that the findings were different when you actually look at, you know, this slice of the population. And again, I think it's different, right, because of the experiences that they have. And why do they have those different experiences? Because they are, you know, um, poor uh, Afro-descendant women receiving social welfare beneficiaries. So perhaps the way they see the world, and again, I because every time I mention my results, people say, oh yeah, but what about this community in Rio? I didn't study Rio. <laughs> and I'm not generalizing for um, all of Brazil. I'm simply saying that what I found in Salvador, Sao Paulo, and San Luis um, is that uh, the the population of those participants. Most of them were evangelical and they support leftist political candidates. Those are the findings. Um, And when they talk about, you know, um, why they supported certain candidates. Or, or when they talked about their opinions of certain candidates, so they did not have very favorable (laughs) opinions of uh, Michelle Temir. And most of those were due, no one really mentioned race in Brazil. Um, Like, you know, even though, you know, people, you know, uh, at the time, called him different names or whatever, most women didn't talk about race. They talked more about class and that he was for the rich and things like that. Whereas in the U.S., um, also, uh, they did not have many favorable opinions of Trump. Um, But people would talk about both uh, race and class, right? So they would say he only wanted to help of rich people and things like that. Um, and then they would just flat out say he was racist and they had some other, you know, choice words (laughs) about Trump. Um, but, um, I would definitely say the, the main finding, well, the other thing too, is I have a question about political knowledge. So I can talk a little bit about that as well. Um, just in terms of, um, the, the more kind of political science findings, but, um, what I noticed when, when I did some of these, so um, before, before this work, I did some preliminary interviews in Milwaukee. And what I noticed is when we would ask a question about political party, they didn't know what we were talking about. And so then I was like, oh, I need to change the question. So then I changed the question to, do you know what a political, can you name a political party? And uh, the women in Brazil had uh, higher percentages um, of, of people who could actually name a political party um, compared to the United States. So, for example, 68% of the participants in Brazil could name a political party, and that was only 40% in the United States. Right, and so that's why they also talk about mandatory voting, because just the fact that they have mandatory voting, people know more, right? And if you ever go to Brazil, which I'm sure you've seen this, <laughs> Dr. Gillum, during campaigns, right? You they have the loudspeakers going, oh, vote for number thirteen, vote for number one, three, four, five, or you know whatever it is, right? We don't have that in the U.S. There's you know. It's very rare to just like be in your neighborhood and someone has, you know, a sound speaker going talking about candidates. Now, of course, you will see a lot of things on TV. You'll get, oh my gosh, I don't know how many text messages I got. You know, the other week, some conservative sent me a a text about, uh, and I'm like, how did they even get my phone number? So you do have kind of some of that stuff but it's usually during a presidential election. And of course 2024, you know, is coming up, but just kind of like, you know, the, I'm just thinking about all the leaflets, you know, that I see and get when I'm in Brazil during an election. So that whole discourse and just that, you know, their political structure is different. And, you know, they have over 30 political parties, right, in Brazil. That's very different <laughs> than the U.S. Um, and so I think that just exposes people more. Um, and so that explains some of the difference in political knowledge. The, the fascinating thing is that um, even among social welfare, welfare beneficiaries in the U.S., their levels of voting are very similar to black women in general. So even though they have lower levels of political knowledge as um, uh, is kind of uh, measured, right? Through just being able to name a political party, they still vote. And so um, I would just encourage anyone that's doing work on like uh, mobilizing voters, really in in either country, but especially in the US, first of all, thank you for all of (laughs) your hard work because it really does pay off. Um, When people literally like have all of these efforts to go to communities and encourage people to vote, black women are voting regardless of class. So that's really, really important. Um, So they still have high, um, pretty high levels of voting and they support leftist candidates. Right. Again, I I know that's not surprising in the U.S., but in Brazil, when you, you know, you're looking at a sample that, you know, that's mainly evangelical. (laughs) Anyone familiar with what has been going on in Brazil for the past four years and, you know, just what you see really both in the media, but also the academic literature talking about uh, conservatism and kind of alt-right and evangelicals. You, you you don't get to see the other side, right? So I talk about this a little bit in the book, how there were Black evangelicals organizing against Bolsonaro. There are Black evangelicals who left their churches because they disagreed with what their pastors were saying. And then people, um, and also pastors, like encouraging them to vote for Bolsonaro. Everyone didn't say, yes, that's okay. Or there are some people who, you know, they still may participate in church or church activities, but they don't, but they, they don't agree or didn't agree with Bolsonaro, may still not agree with Bolsonaro. Um, so also, I think it's just this, again, was really eye opening to me because I was, you know, I'm reading the same literature as other political scientists. I'm seeing the same things in the media. So for me, I came in thinking, oh yeah, evangelicals. okay. I know I, I already can predict how they're going to vote. But no, this was really a a huge finding for me. Um, and it really goes back to, you know, really thinking about the experiences that people have and how that can shape one's political behavior. And so that's the thing that, um, that I think is really important um, in this work. And you're, you're really able to see it when you use a, a Black feminist approach, because it, it makes you think beyond just, you know, either race by itself or gender by itself. But you have to think about all of these things together.
1: Yeah, the relationship between um, evangelical voters and voting for leftist candidates in Brazil is a really important finding and, you know, definitely should be highlighted. And, um, and it, is, it is surprising as well to me, given what I was hearing about the discourse and everything. Um, and so I wanted to, I guess, contextualize these findings that you made with uh, talking about your research methods. Um, and so you said that people might say, oh, you know, You know, you're not talking about all of Brazil, or this isn't representative, you know, and, and as you've said, you're talking about these, you know, six cities, Sao Paulo, San Luis, Salvador in Brazil, and Milwaukee, Charlotte, and Chicago in the United States, um, But um, also you have a mixture of methods where you have like quantitative methods and qualitative methods as well, which, you know, really speaks to, I think your, you know, your skill as a researcher. And so I've known you um, for quite some time now, but I've also known that you have this, you know, this, you know, real skill for assembling research teams and carrying out these surveys and interviews um, because you... In your study, you did 240 interviews with 40 participants in each city. And I think you did some of the interviews, but you also had research um, participants or research assistants help you in, in all of these cities as well. And so I'm just imagining this is like a massive undertaking that you individually manage and carry out. So I wondered if you could talk about how you assemble these research teams in these two different countries and, you know, if anything you can share about how you, you know, train them or organize them in, you know, in these sort of massive endeavors that you, that you undertake.
2: Yes. So first of all, I will say I was lucky. <laughs> um, so, yeah, at the time I was at UW-Milwaukee, I had received um, an internal grant. I think it was maybe $150,000, something like that. But so that allowed me the, you know, the the money <laughs> to be able to um, assemble these teams in the U on the U.S. side. I hired um, graduate students and undergraduate students. And so these were students who I already uh, had some type of relationship with. One was actually Brazilian, who she's now a Ph.D., very proud of her. Um, and so so I trained. And then for on the Brazil side, um, one I had already trying to think at that time, had I worked with him? No, actually, I think my Brazilian graduate student, she recommended one person. And so, um, at at the time he was getting a master degree in, I don't remember what. Um, but, um, so I interviewed him. He was great. There was another person who had actually earned their PhD, but I had worked with them in the past. Um, And then, yeah, and then I had the the Brazilian graduate student. Um, So I trained all of them on interview methods. They had to do, you know, the whole uh, IRB training. Um, And I hired, everyone I hired was of African descent. So I am very happy about that um, because often, and this is really in both cases, in Brazil and the U.S., it's not always easy for, um, for black students, uh, graduate or undergraduate students to get experience, um, being research assistants. There are, you know, some, uh, I think the Mel and program, things like that. But, um, you know, outside of these major programs, they are not always, um, unfortunately the, the people who get the opportunities and, um, one of the students was just amazing. She's, uh, well, she's graduated now, but at the time she was an undergraduate from Milwaukee, um, but who had also like studied abroad in Brazil. Um, And so later I even uh, hired her to kind of help organize some of um, my interviews. Um, So yeah, it was really, you know, either former graduate students, people I, I had worked with before, or um, like the the person I mentioned who was from Milwaukee, but um, did some work in Brazil. So she actually never took a class with me, but I knew her and mentored her just because I knew she was interested in Brazil um, and she was really excellent. Um, and they were all, the the great thing about really all of them is... Because there are some things you can't really train. Like I can train people. Oh, okay. So if they give a short answer, then you can follow up in this way, right? Um, but just in their the humility that they brought to these interviews, it I was really able to see that because the 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 participants felt comfortable with them, right? And so for and I'm I'm thinking well the the brazilians but also for um the the two who did interviews in Milwaukee they were both from Milwaukee and they were able to be very relatable you know even though they were university students but they didn't come in as if like oh yeah you know i'm better than you i'm a, a you know whatever a student and it was just their personalities right so that uh so they were great. Um, there was another a graduate student who she did some of the interviews with me in Charlotte, um, and she was from Milwaukee. But same thing; it's just it's just her personality, and the women felt very comfortable around them. Um, and so that's why, you know, when I was also you know just saying I was very lucky um, because again that like you you can't you can't train someone on a personality. <laughs> was just lucky that I, you know, chose, you know, very smart people, but also just very human and kind people, um, and and I was able to see that um, while the, you know, when they did their interviews, and these interviews went from 2018 to 2019, you know, so I was I was in Brazil you know, uh, when they did their interviews, um, I didn't go with them to every single interview, but I did go with them to some. And then um, the same thing from, or when I was in the U.S. um, The reason I did some of the interviews in, in the U.S. is uh, I am very much the type to where I have a goal and I'm like, okay, let's get that done. Um, (laughs) And, and so, you know, if, If I felt like the interview should be going a little bit faster, I just stepped in. And so, yeah, so that's what I did um, in Milwaukee um, and in Charlotte.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and then going off of this question about the interviews, you include the interview questions in the appendix of the book, so I'm sure people will, um, you know, find that helpful in thinking about your, you know, your data and the information that you include in the book. And I wondered if you could say anything about how you developed the questions for the interviews and how you recruited participants to respond to the questions.
2: Yes. Um... So some of the questions that I have are questions that I've used in like previous research. Um, And then some are just, you know, for, for this work, but also I was thinking about which, you know, I'm, I'm doing now is like, if I replicate it, um, you know, how can I use some of these questions and, I have a lot of questions, so I haven't even used all of these. Um, At one point, I was thinking about, so I remember this was Lula's, okay, so now we can say it's his third term, kind of, but during his kind of first and second terms, I remember when they were talking about how, you know, people were able to buy things they didn't have before, like a refrigerator or, you know, a, a washer, you know, those type of things. So I even have questions about that, like, oh, do you own a washer or dryer? Um, I haven't used those questions, but I have those. Um, and so there were just, or, or like I say, even the the religion question is more of just like a demographic question. But I included it just because it's a demographic question and then, you know, ended up having this super interesting finding. Um, so some were just demographic, but some I just kind of had like an interest in. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is so for these, these were all in-depth interviews. And so for me, this was one of the the first times that I didn't just have like a purely, you know, quantitative use Latin American political opinion project type um, survey, like large scale survey um, project. And of course I still appreciate those. I think it's um, those, you know, type of studies are, are super helpful. Um, but I found this to be one of my most challenging projects because I was using the in-depth interviews, right? I couldn't just, you know, run my logic regression, you know, see what I, you know, see what the findings are, um, have my predicted probabilities, you know. Um, This was really like going through the interviews and then actually paying attention to how they talk about certain things, what keeps coming up, um, and... And then again, um, just finding, you know, really interesting ways that people talk about things. And so I already had an appreciation <laughs> for qualitative work. Um, and this made me have even more of an appreciation um, because it's really, really hard work. Um, and so I do like I, I advocate for mixed methods. There are some things you just miss if you're only running regressions all day, like I could have, I could have, well, actually for this one, I couldn't have, because I haven't found any, um, large scale data sets in the contemporary context that have these type of questions. Um, but, you know, if I was looking at something else, you yeah, know, I could have just got, you know, a, a large scale data set, um, ran some regressions or, you know, use, um, some other advanced, uh, quantitative technique, Um, To see what I would find. But this actually made me pay attention to words like, (laughs) again, like how people are talking about certain things Um, or like we were talking about earlier, very simple ways of like, oh, well, someone said this to me. This is how I responded. Um, another thing I forgot to mention was a lot of times when when women in Brazil talked about skin color discrimination, a lot of times they talked about how, how they were treated as children. So they would talk about um, what people said at school, people talking about their skin color, pe- people talking about hair. You just don't get that in a survey. I mean, you don't. And this is not to critique surveys because I love surveys. But, um, but yeah, you don't get that kind of rich analysis. And then you also, and and, and I don't, you know, I don't want to go outside of my field, but I think it's something important to notice that people still hold that pain as adults. And they're still talking about what someone said when they were a kid in school. That's important for, for all of us to think about. Right, um, and again, it, it came out because of these you know interviews.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know that's really important. Um, and, and as a as an ethnographer, that is, uh, you know, thank you for affirming our 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 methods and our qualitative methods, and that's that it is it's a lot. It's a lot to go through all of the the wording that people, the the things that people say and to categorize it, um, and I been I always appreciate your skill that you have with uh, both the qualitative work as well as the quantitative work. You you really you know know how to work with um, numbers and and you know also find these these patterns and and give us these like large scale bird's eye view of what's going on, which is also really important. Um, And so my uh, kind of final question for you is that I wanted to ask you about how you bring your knowledge, not only through research, but through leadership. And so I've also known you to be a leader in our field, I guess, of Brazilian studies, but also in um, political science. And I know that you were the past president of the Brazilian Studies Association and currently you are the national co-coordinator for the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil. And so I wanted to ask you if you could tell us um, something about the objectives that you have for this work and some of the actions that you've done in this work in these in these different roles.
2: Thank you for that question. I think, um, and by the way, I love all of the work that you are doing, Dr. Gilliam, right? So, just doing this interview is going beyond what we kind of do as academics, right? You could have just written your book and went about your day or, you know, written your articles um, and, you know, that would have been fine, right? But you're actually making sure that you highlight the work of other scholars, right? So, the like, the work that I'm doing, so... Um, you know, outside of the the book that I um, that we're talking about, I find it really important, right? Because I'm not just writing this book and then and then saying, "Oh yeah, you know, we should highlight the voices of these women," which we should, but also, what can we do as scholars? Um, what can we do, small and large, right? So just like when I was saying. Um, I was able to hire these research assistants, um, Black, of African descent. Um, that's a very small act, but it's, it's, it's important, right? Um, and so the other work that I do for for me is super fulfilling because it allows me to go outside of just you know, what we do as academics, right? So being able to collaborate with Black activists in Brazil, um, that's what I've been able to do through the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil. Um, The network that I've been, just that that I have been exposed to through the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil, um, has really been helpful to me, um, because it really the the connections allow me to be able to do you know other things, but also um, so I'll just give you a concrete example. So, oh, of course you know um, Dr. Erica Larkins, so I know. Um, I know her through both Brazil Studies Association as well as the U.S. Network for Democracy in Brazil. A couple years ago, she had an excellent conference that was in honor of Marielle Franco. I met Monica Cunha there, who is now a city council member in Rio. Um, and um, Monica, Monica has done a lot of work um, with women whose um, family members have been um, killed by the police. I was introduced to her at that conference. Um, and then I had a symposium um, this year focused on Black women um, and politics. So both politicians, but also activists in Brazil and the US. So who did I invite? I invited now a councilwoman. Monica Cunha, uh, along with um, Vilma Hayes, um, and then um, Dr. Dalila Negreros, who was my former student. But all that to say is that I was able to learn from them when they were here at the symposium. And the great thing was that they were also um, interacting with Black women from the U.S., right? So that was kind of my goal was so that these two communities and, and, and really two groups of women could actually talk to each other. Um, and so, but it was, it was really through these networks that allow, um, that, that allowed me to, um, build those type of relationships. Um, and then just, you know, other activities that I've been able to be involved with, um, like I said, collaborating, um, with uh, Brazilian activists, um, that's really fulfilling to me, Um, and so that, and and it's really important to me, it's it's really important to, to not just write about things, but, you know, to do the work.
1: Great. So that's really important, and it sounds like um, it kind of gives you a reason, like why you know you do the work, um, and it helps you kind of stay stay fulfilled and stay stay committed. Because as you know, this work can be um, like it, it can be tiring, and but but it you know but it's so it's important to like fill yourself back up, right? Um, and so the reaching out and creating these connections um, is really important for that. Um, and so my final question is. Uh, what Do you have any upcoming projects, um, either through research or leadership? And so now that the book is out, now that the Politics of Survival is out and about, um, what's next for you uh, after this book? So um, I would say
2: academically, um, I really became fascinated with this question about um, the role And I still don't know how to articulate it. So I don't know if it's the the role of religion on um, political thinking and activism or uh, if it's more of the how the experience and it could be the intersectional experience of Black people, how that shapes um, or how that intersects with religion to then lead to certain political behavior. Um, So in terms of a future project, that's what I'm thinking about um, for, you know, for uh, studying in Brazil, but also in the U.S., but especially for Brazil, because I can see it across religion. I see it um, for people who practice condomble and how that inspires um, certain types of activism. But again, I also see it for people who, it could be, you know, people who practice Christianity. Um, and again, it's, I think especially during those Bolsonaro years for those who left, right? Um, and and they left, um, you know, because of uh, dissatisfaction or, or like I said, you know, pastors trying to kind of shape um, how they voted. but I'm really interested in this question of um, the relationship between religion, politics, and activism. Um, there's lots of work on this in the US, so I you know I don't I don't I don't know if I would do a comparative project, maybe because I think some things are changing in the US, just especially in terms of younger black Americans who don't necessarily, Practice Christianity, um, but sometimes they still will go back to some type of uh, spirituality that shapes how they do um, activism. So that's just kind of, like I say, in my head. I have not written anything. (laughs) Um, And then, just in terms of um, the type of work that I plan on doing, I am planning um, another symposium. Um, and I think it will focus on um, black activism throughout Latin America. Uh, I have a co-authored book with Clovis Oliveira and, and Casey Morrison on Black Lives Matter in Latin America. So it will mainly focus on um, you know some of the authors from that book, but also bring in some activists. So that's what I, that's what I have in the future.
1: Great, so we will look out for that and best wishes on accomplishing those projects. Um, they sound really important, especially the one, well, well all of it, but um, the the one about the religion and the intersection with politics sounds like a fascinating new, uh, new project to delve into, especially as it's happening kind of in real time. So that sounds really important too. Um, So thank you so much for sharing this with us. I've been speaking with Dr. Gladys mitchell Wathauer, the author of the book, The Politics of Survival, Black Women, Social Welfare Beneficiaries in Brazil and the United States, published by Columbia University Press in the series, Black Lives in the the Diaspora, Past, Present, and Future. Thank you so much for writing this book, Dr. Wathauer, and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you.